The Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello, and welcome to the Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. In the aftermath of the Freeze Art Fairs, a crop of more historic shows have opened at various London museums, including exhibitions dedicated to portraits by Cezanne and Soutine. Later in the podcast, Eddie Frankel, visual art editor at Time Out London, joins me to review them. It's such an oppressive show. It's got a really oppressive climate and uh, it, it's, it's all the better for it, I think. But first, Vincent Noss is the art newspaper's correspondent in Paris. He happened to be in London this week, so we grabbed him to come and talk to us about one of the most intriguing stories he's followed in his many years reporting for us. This involves a series of works once attributed to major artists including Cranach, Parmigianino and Franz Hals, among others, which have fooled museum curators, auction houses and collectors, but are now thought to be forgeries. Linking them all is an Italian-based Frenchman, Giuliano Ruffini, who sold the works to various dealers. On his part, Ruffini insists he never presented a single painting as the real thing. I'm a collector, not an expert, he once told Vincent. So Vincent, what first alerted you to this story? So there were a few signs uh, there was a, a, a whole dispute in Solario, uh, Andrea Solario, uh, Christ of Soul, which was put on auction in Paris. And uh, Mr. Brown, who is the great specialist in the US, said it was probably a fake, uh, but it was authenticated by other experts. There was a trial, and I dealt, I dealt with that at the time. Uh, that was quite a while ago. And then um, uh, there was the most intriguing case of uh, Gentileschi, painted on lapis lazuli, uh, David uh, looking at the head of Goliath, um, which appeared on the Parisian market. And uh, I was alerted by uh, dealers and experts and even curators saying that... Um, um, it was proposed by different people, some very shady, whatever, you know, they were not even dealers. And um, each uh, person, had a, each go-between, had a different story to tell about the provenance. So once it was coming from Italy, another time it was coming from Russia, another time it was coming from Britain, and uh, so uh, some friends of mine in um, the art uh, market told me, well, th- there's obviously a problem. It's, it's really a masterwork. It's really a great discovery. No one thought it could be fake at the time. And uh, I made uh, some research about it, some investigation. I uh, even questioned the Carabinieri, a friend of mine at the Carabinieri headquarters in Rome, who said no, has not been reported, it was not reported stolen, it didn't appear in the French police database, you know, it was nothing. And uh, everyone in Paris declined to buy it, although some were very, very tempted, uh, because the provenance was really too, you know, uh, it was not clear at all. And obviously there was a problem somewhere. But this, we should say that this work has since then or around that time appeared at the National Gallery in London. Is that right? Yeah, years later, mm-hmm. uh, many years later. Uh, so uh, these were sort of early signs. 
And uh, a couple of years ago, uh, they, there was uh, an art dealer in Italy uh, who came and saw me and said, well, you know, these cases are related and they are related with dozen other cases uh, of uh, alleged forgeries. He said there were forgeries. Right. Uh, I didn't have any evidence of that at the time. And still now, there is, you know, no one has been uh, charged or uh, so, and there's no trial yet. So it's, uh, we have to be cautious uh, about the results of the criminal investigation. So he gave me uh, examples and I came back, of course, to the art police over there. And I said, uh, well, uh, have you heard of that? And he said, no, we've never heard of that. And uh, at one point, another uh, art dealer came, a French art dealer came and said the same story, but at a different time with different works of art. So the case was growing uh, almost every day. Were any of the individuals involved at that point spelled out to you, or was it just sort of quite ambiguous, generalistic terms that these people were describing? No, they really spelled out what was going on uh, in their opinion, at last, right. at least. And uh, they both and others whom I interviewed later, uh, were uh, making business with someone, a Frenchman, living in Italy and uh, of an Italian family called Giuliano Ruffini. And they, uh, uh, they, they told me all these paintings, these dubious paintings, came from this guy. Yeah. Now he's a collector, is that right? He is not a dealer, he's a collector. He claims he's a collector. And, uh, you know, it's not difficult to understand that you have uh, some, uh, you have people around Europe selling a lot of works of art. And they say they are not dealers for fiscal uh, reasons. And, uh, you know, they say they are collectors. And there are many, many other cases, and uh, that's uh, so he claims to be a collector, but he he also admits he has been selling uh, paintings uh, for decades now. I mean, uh, since the maybe the seventies or the eighties. So it's a very old case uh, we're related to now. Right. So. I think the first time that you mention him in your reporting for the art newspaper is in this particular case of the Cranach, is that correct? Yes. Then the case became public when the Cranach was seized. That's the 1st of March uh, 2016. The Cranach was belonged to the Prince of... Uh, still belongs to the Prince of Liechtenstein. And there was an exhibition of his collection in the south of France. And the judge and the art police, they seized the painting in the middle of the shows. And it was really the, uh, considered as the best work in the, in the show. How did, how, what prompted them to act? What prompted the judge to act? Was it an anonymous tip-off or was, were, 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 were they? Uh, they yeah, they, they, there was an anonymous tip-off. Uh, they were. They also had an interview with one of the go-betweens, who said that uh, he, I think he, he named maybe ten or twelve paintings, 
saying they were fakes and they came from uh, Mr. Ruffini. Ruffini denies, of course, but uh, he doesn't deny that they came from him. No. But he denies that they are fakes and um, that he was aware of that. Yeah, but but also he, he he also claims that he doesn't in any way vouch for them being major works of art. He he bought he he, he claims yeah. that he has bought these works and that yeah. he he regards them as as good artworks. But he's not saying this is a Cranach, this is a Gentileschi, etc. Yeah, he has a, a strong defense because uh, he even uh, I have access to a lot of uh, contracts. But uh, if you take the case of the, the Cranach, it was a, a Venice with a veil. And uh, when he f- signed the first uh, commission to sell it, uh, it was described as uh, a naked woman. Right. So his argument is, well, I saw a naked woman. It, it is a naked woman, obviously. There's no doubt about this. Uh, I've never said it was even uh, 16th or, you know, 17th or whatever or, uh, century. And I never said it was by Cranach. And then uh, what happened later is that uh, some experts, art experts, and I'm not an art expert, and uh, uh, I'm not an expert at all, he says, uh, said it was by Cranach. So I think, well, great. Uh, and um, but I never sold it, and I never sold any painting as made by an old master. They were all, uh, you know, uh, given to old masters after my time, which is a strong legal, you know, position in a way. So, what happens next in terms of it seized, and is it then analysed? Yeah, in this case, so the painting was seized. It was sent to the Louvre, where they have a, 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 one of the best and, um, laboratory for works of art in the world. And it was analyzed. And to, to give you uh, uh, an example on, on, on this painting, uh, they spent 200 working hours on it. Right. And only for this part of the... Uh, legal uh, report. Then you had a curator from Vienna who studied it. Uh, then you had uh, someone who specialized in signature and writing who studied the signature. Then uh, you had someone who specialized in wood who studied the wood panel. And that demonstrates how it can be difficult to prove these cases. Now, if we could move on to the Franz Howells picture, because this is a really similarly intriguing story, and it's one that actually directly involves a curator at the Louvre. Can you tell us about the story of the Franz Howells? So, at one point, I met Ruffini. I met him a couple of times. And uh, so I I had long interviews with him, and, you know, and he he was very proud to have sold so many paintings. And himself, he said he was the source for uh, a Fensal's portrait, uh, the Cranach, of course, uh, the Gentileschi. Uh, one of them was uh, a portrait by Fensal's, which has been discovered by a curator uh, from the Louvre, who was, who is still uh, the head of the Dutch and Flemish painting at the Louvre. 
And he uh, convinced the Louvre to try to buy it for 5 million euros at the time. And he described it as a masterpiece, published it in the Berlin magazine. But then the museum did not find the money. And so the painting was uh, came back to Ruffini, who then sold it uh, to Mark Weiss. He was a, an art dealer in London. Yes, the Mark Weiss Gallery in London. And uh, Mark Weiss, through Sotheby's, sold it to a very important uh, US collector. And uh, uh, when I started to publish the articles, I went and met with one of the leading characters in, in Sotheby's. And I told him, you have a problem because you have this guy. And apparently there are many problems uh, with the paintings he has sold. And I quoted several cases in which uh, Sotheby's was involved. And I said, and there's this Fancel's portrait. So they uh, contacted the collector and uh, they put the painting under examination in the US uh, in Orion uh, Analytical Lab uh, in Williamstown. And uh, the lab said it was a fake. So they paid back. Uh, it's a bit of a complicated case for them because they paid back the whole sum, which was almost $11 million, to the collector, although uh, most of the money went to the British dealer. And Mark Weiss uh, said he was not happy with the results of the examination. He wanted to do a, a current uh, analysis, uh, which was uh, apparently refused. So he didn't pay them back. And now there's a lawsuit which has been introduced in front of the Court of London. And it's not yet been concluded. No, it has been, there was no hearing yet. Right. Now, this is one of the intriguing things about the Ruffini story, is that these paintings aren't just um, fooling people at the sort of lower end of the trade, let's say. Mm -hmm. There are people in major positions in some of the great museums of the world that are being convinced mm -hmm. that some of these paintings are genuine. Yes, you have uh, the, the museums which were caught in this uh, scandal, because it is a scandal in a way, uh, are the, uh, the museum in Vienna, Kunsthistorisches Museum in Vienna, uh, the Parma Museum, the Louvre, uh, the National Gallery in London and the Metropolitan Museum in New York. So, you see, major actors. Uh, you have the case of uh, the Parmigianiani, you know, which was also sold by Sotheby's and also declared a fake uh, after a technical examination, uh, which was sold by Sotheby's as uh, by the circle of the artist. So it was sort of cautious uh, attribution. Uh, and then exhibited under the name of the artist himself by the Metropolitan Museum. Um, so, uh, and you have the case of the Gentileschi, uh, which was um, exhibited at the National Gallery after it was acquired by a British collector in London. 
I'm really intrigued by the story of the Parmigianino because one of the beacons that really leaps out from the page when you read that story is that David Exurgeon, the British specialist in in the Renaissance, immediately identified that the Parmigianino was very unlikely because it's a copy after Correggio and he said he immediately knew that Parmigianino didn't do this. What's intriguing is how come those alarm bells weren't ringing with other scholars, i.e. is this a case not just of good forgeries but inferior scholarship in some of these museums? So, um, in the case of the Parmigianino and David's opinion, uh, David did not think at the time that it could be a modern forgery. Right. He, he, he was discussing the fact that it could be by another artist, of, you know, another art, artist of the time of Parmigianino. So uh, that, you know, it's, it's, it's a sort of different point of view that the one we can have now. Um, the main problem for me is that all these dealers, art uh, experts, curators, who got fooled in this story, never uh, objected to the fact that these paintings, which appeared more or less, you know, in in the meantime, uh, these paintings never had any story. They were coming out of nowhere. So uh, they were never recorded in any inventory, in any archive, any, you know, uh, estate. Uh, they, were n- they never appeared in the books, in the catalogues, um, and uh, even in the, in the recent time, I mean, in the 20th century, no one knows where they came from. And they didn't care. So that is very upsetting. My opinion is that it's a problem of art history, vision, because you have a strong trend in art history, uh, which uh, was, you know, reinforced in the 19th and the 20th century, saying that art history is about aesthetics and aesthetics only so these people they look at images and they see a wonderful image but they don't look at the history they don't look at the materials it's not a problem it does for them it doesn't exist uh, for instance there is a contradiction which appears in several of these cases and others which have not been published today, is that you have, in each case, on almost each case, you have a wonderful painting in such a wonderful state, of course, I would say, (laughs) has never been restored. So you have a painting uh, which can be three or four centuries old. It has never been restored, never been repainted. That is very, very rare. Uh, and uh, many times it's on a wood panel which is very old and even damaged so how can you have such a good painting painting layer if you want on a panel which is damaged and the painting is not damaged but this 
They don't look at this. They don't look at the panel. They don't. Uh, they don't look at the history. They don't look at the historical um, making of the work, if you want. And um, and uh, I think that that was the big mistake. And the art history will not go out of this story without damages. One of the great mysteries of this story is that we don't know who the forger is. Is that right? So. In the criminal investigation, names were given. So I'm, I'm, I'm writing a book about all this. So I will give the name in my book. Uh, some some uh, witnesses say that uh, several painters painted different paintings over the decades. And there was one who is really, really very good, who lives nearby Parma, where Ruffini lives too and uh, who might have been uh, the master of the last, you know, most important paintings and the most valuable ones. Uh, he, he he doesn't want to speak. He doesn't want to comment. He doesn't deny and he doesn't confirm, of course. And uh, of course, that would be the, the, one of the clues which would be given if there's a trial in Paris, which is most probable now. Uh, is will he come, will he speak, and will he speak up? It's a compelling story, which I'm sure we'll be reading a lot more about in your forthcoming articles, articles for the R newspaper. Vincent, thank you so much. Now, a cluster of the major museums in London have just opened their big autumn shows. Last week, Soutine Portraits opened at the Courtauld Gallery, and this week, the National Portrait Gallery has unveiled Cezanne Portraits. Meanwhile, Monochrome, Painting in Black and White, opens at the National Gallery next week and features everything from a Van Eyck Annunciation to Olaf Eliasson's installation using single-frequency monochromatic lights. Eddie Frankel, the visual art editor at Time Out London, has been to see the exhibitions and is here to discuss them with me. Eddie, we've just come out of the freeze madness and suddenly there's been a rash of historically minded, if not entirely historic, shows opening in London. I have to say, I found it a tremendous relief after all that contemporary art all opening at once. How about you? Yeah, thank God. It got pretty boring by the end of it. I think the way I ended up feeling was that not a lot of thought had gone into so many of the shows that open up around Freeze. There were hundreds of shows and so many of them ended up feeling quite a lot like showrooms. And so it's so nice to finally get some old art that's had a bit of thought put into it and a little bit of passion in the curation. And it makes for just a much better experience in quite a lot of them. So it's a relief. You're right. So let's begin with Cezanne Portraits at the National Portrait Gallery. This is the show that's just come from the Musée d'Orsay in Paris and will travel to Washington. I saw the Cezanne show in 1996 at the Tate Gallery and it had a really profound effect on me because I'd I'd admired Cezanne before that point and then seeing that body of work together suddenly made him so much greater a painter. How about you? I don't know if you've had the chance to see a big show of Cezanne up until this point. I have. I saw the there was quite a big Cezanne show in Aix-en-Provence. So I grew up in France and I go back to every summer and, and I grew up near uh, Mont-Saint-Victoire. So it has a big impact on me, you know, at the at the worst time. So when it's all put together and it's at its best, it's fantastic. So I saw a great show um, at the Musée Granet. 
Uh, but this is my first time seeing all of his portraits together, and it's it's lovely. It's quite staggering, isn't it? It is indeed. I mean, the the thing I mean by seeing that body of work together is that Cezanne never really works on one picture in total isolation. You always feel there's a cumulative effect of him moving from one picture to the next. Um, there's a, there's a, a tremendous energy that builds over time when you look at the bodies of work. The fact that he, there's so many, I mean, 160 portraits in his career, around 30 of, or of his wife, Hortense, and you, there's a lot of them in this show, and you really get to see this progression of the language. Mm, yeah, and he's quite, he's so restless and aggressive in the way he paints, and there's, there's no let up. He just, he's just constantly looking at things and going, oh no, not, not like that. I don't like this, and moving on, and constantly, rethinking and rejigging which is why the all those images of Vortance in the thing they they constantly change they're all of the same woman some of them in the same dress and the same with the same background but they're so different they just they could be of different subjects because they're so intensely reworked and rethought it's amazing there's a certain brutality about them though, mm, definitely he does not come across like a very nice person I think I think uh people always say that there's no uh he doesn't capture any emotion but I think he does capture an emotion and that's annoyance because he forces people to sit for so long for so many sittings and they look so frustrated and especially Madame Cézanne who you know you know by all accounts had a pretty torrid time of it with him he doesn't really care about capturing her beauty doesn't care about capturing her emotions he cares about her potential as an object she's like the mountain she's a she's something that reflects light and he has to capture it he's so driven it's so intense there's a really lovely detail in the catalogue where they talk about John Elderfield, who's the mate lead curator, talks about this moment of discovery where um, Cezanne is balding, prematurely balding, and he uh, he, he he treats this as a, as a as a fantastic opportunity because it gives him the chance to reinforce the kind of oval that is the head, and then he also does the same with his son, but in reverse, if you like. So the so the bare chin of his son also becomes a very um, important part in in, in this oval shape for the head, and again, it reinforces this idea of a of a of a face of a, of a of a figure as a series of shapes described in space. Yeah, and it's just like his still lives, and it's just like his landscapes. And the one of the most incredible ones is the woman of the cafetiere, where she's just a pyramid. And then eventually, once he figures out that pyramid thing, later on, there's the man with the giant hands, also a pyramid. Uh, there's the woman with the rosary, a sort of pyramid shape. And I really see him as a sort of reducer and a decoder. He wants to boil what's in front of him down to its component parts and its component colours. If he can paint a face as an oval, that's what he's trying to get it down to. If he can get a human body down to a pyramid or a triangle, a set of squares, that's what he's after. He's reducing things down to their basest elements. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, that's where you see the, the modernity in it. It's, he's, I think they're portraits second and they're these exercises in capturing shapes first. But I also sort of found great joy in this in this show in the sense that I love paint. And if you love paint, then the way that Cezanne applies the stuff, it's so original for its time. I mean, right from the start of the show, there's those incredible portraits of his uncle, which are sort of slapped on in pasta. And you think, this is Auerbach 100 years before Auerbach was doing it. You know, it's incredible in pasto. It's, uh, they're sort of a bit fragile now. They're sort of cracking and they don't, they're not, they haven't, they're a bit worse for wear for the intervening years. But still, all the time, I'm constantly minded, look, looking through this show, that this is 
utterly innovative in terms of the way he's using the stuff of pain. But it's also that he, in turn, it may have been a sort of great anxiety. Picasso loved Cezanne's anxiety, said that was the most important element of his work. But but uh, also a kind of a tremendous depth of engagement with the physical stuff. Mm, yeah, those palette knife paintings are staggering. The especially the ones of his of his uncle. They look. They they're so psychedelic. Those little swirls of black and white, and they and they the darkness in them is is what's really impressive. I think in those early ones, they're 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 so full of blacks and so full of these filthy whites. Uh, it's hard to really figure out what he was trying to do, other than wrestle with the material. Now, if we're talking about the physical stuff of paint, then Soutine is an artist that immediately comes to mind. And we've been blessed to have a show by Cezanne and Soutine in the same city at once. The Soutine show at the Courtauld Gallery is a relatively small show, but it features portraits of the sort of workers of the Parisian milieu, which he was part of. And to my mind, it's an utter revelation. I've never seen this many Soutines in the same space before. And boy, it's, it's a knockout. Yeah, he really gets gloopy with the paint, doesn't he? He really messes it into all sorts of weird shapes. Again, very hourbacky. Uh, they are very surreal, weird paintings, aren't they? <laughs> they, almost, they, they it's almost like they should not work. These mm. things, it, it seems there's almost no uh, armature on which the paint is clinging. They seem too gloopy, surely. But then somehow you stand back from them and what solid, monumental things they are. Yeah, and, and they capture a lot of emotion. And it's quite a similar emotion to what Suzanne captures. It captures this sense of annoyance and a sense of being downtrodden. But I think what he manages to get is this idea that the that the work that these people have to do, the servitude, has really messed with their bodies. And I, it, the impression I got from it was that all these years spent, you know, uh, serving all these rich people in beautiful suites and beautiful restaurants and hotels had really had this physical impact on the people. So when he draws, I mean, paints them as these sort of uh, angular. Uh, as if they're made of clothes hangers. They're all all made of weird triangles. It's as if it's the work that has sucked the joy out of them. And I, they really come across as these miserable sods who are looking at him going, I can't believe I'm wasting my time sat here for you for hours. It's great. It's really, really one, nasty. One of the things that's, that's good about that is because, of course, Soutine is one of art's most famous miserable sods. He is, uh, you know, a famously, a sort of overly caricatured perhaps, but a, but a famously miserable, miserable man who once had an ox carcass in his, in his garret for however long it was and rotting ox carcass. You know, he's a, he's a, he's a sort of figure of myth to a certain extent, but there is, a, there is, I mean, the important point, a serious point in that regard is that there is an identification that's going on here, isn't there? He's, he's a Lithuanian immigrant who arrives in Paris with no money. And these people that he's portraying are by no means the wealthy Paris, uh, the wealthy Parisians that were that they were serving. These are these are very they they would often have been immigrants themselves. And so there's there's a sense in which Soutine is identifying with them as well as brutalizing them in this way. Yeah, of course. I I think when he's brutalizing them, I think he's really exposing some of their inner workings, and so much of what's within them manages to come out. And that's a fantastic trick for a portrait painter to be able to have and they 
thinking about his ox carcass, they there's so much red in these that I kept thinking about meat in them, and then that makes you think about how they get treated like pieces of meat by the by the people who they have to serve, and then you as the viewer end up as this guest in a hotel where no one who's working there actually wants to serve you, and it's such an oppressive show. It's got a really oppressive climate, and uh, it, it's it's all the better for it, I think. There's one portrait of a butcher in that first room, which is basically a, a slab of meat yeah. that just you can just about discern a face from. And it's such a courageous portrait, made in 1919, 1920, as courageous as some of those things that, were, that Picasso was doing around the same time in terms of really deconstructing the figure. There's barely any discernible, discernible bulk there. It's a study in red. It's meaty. It's almost smelly. You know, it's an incredibly evocative work. It really is. It's, it's, there's so much red in it and there's so little of anything else. And it's such a good introduction to the show because the rest of the show has such an incredibly limited palette as well. It's all black, red and white skin and a couple of white hats on the pastry chefs. But that's it. That's all you're left with. He's using, you know, the barest of his tools to create this impression of, of simplicity and meat. But one of the real delights of the show is that, yes, from a distance, there you are standing across from something. You see the white of the pastry chef and, you, and they've got a very blank background behind them. But the joys of these work is when you go right in close up and you see all that and these sort of ribbons of strange colour that you would never expect to be there, um, both in the faces and in the uh, the clothing and indeed in the background. He's, he's a much more subtle colourist than I ever expected him to be, I have to say. Yeah, I agree. I, 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 was, especially, I was especially taken by the all the greens in the pastry chef's white uh, smock. You just don't think that they're there until you get up close. And then you go, he must have spent a lot of time really thinking about how to portray that white without it being just pure white. It's interesting because, again, with the myth of Soutine, I, having not really read that much about him up until now, had always associated him with the penniless Lithuanian immigrant rather than the successful artist but of course actually when he's making these portraits of these downtrodden people in a very kind of downtrodden way he he was actually achieving a real flush of success Barnes had come over and he bought one pastry chef work and then 50 other works by him and suddenly Soutine was selling and was was wealthy but you get again you don't get any sense that his commitment to portraying these people is in any way wavering he doesn't seem in any way distracted by his success no and I'm, and I'm not sure how long that wealth lasted didn't he take all that money and immediately get a cab from Paris to Nice <laughs> Which is quite an amazing way to waste all of your hard-earned cash. I'm very jealous. I wish I could do that. <laughs> um, we're going we're gonna to move on to talk about Monochrome, which is the show at the National Gallery and will travel, travel to Dusseldorf later. This is an entirely different show. So we've been looking at two shows which have been very much focused on individual artists. This is a group show in the groupiest show where you can imagine, i.e. we're talking about centuries here of art um, and indeed art from different centuries jumbled in together. Did you feel it worked? I really did and I was really uh, going in without knowing what they were going to be showing. I was I was petrified that it was going to be an absolute mess. Uh, knowing that there was going that it was going to end with the uh, Olafur Eliasson uh, monochrome lamp room I, I had a feeling that they were going to have just one modern work 
and then a lot of old stuff and I was going oh that's going to be terrible and then I was worried that they'd put terrible modern works next to great old works or terrible old works next to great works and it's just it's so dangerous and they've messed up so much recently that I was convinced it was going to be awful and it turns out it's brilliant I really liked lots of it I thought a couple of the rooms were a bit dodgy but for the most part seeing Picasso and Giacometti next to Ingres and Gaillère it worked they, they, they're part of the same monochrome universe and what a relief again I'm so happy so let's 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 dig down into what monochrome means. There's all sorts of uses of a black and white image or a or a single coloured image that are described in this show. On the one hand, you have works that were actually made as monochromes to be sold as monochromes. In other cases, you have works that were made as studies that could be used to make further copies, often in colour. Uh, and then towards the end of the show, you get into the area where you, you come to modern art and, and black and white becomes a subject. They really do explore quite broadly what a monochrome work of art might be. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure uh, broadly enough, but I'm sort of glad that it didn't go too broad because they could have also had works by Eve Klein and you could have had Ben Nicholson reliefs uh, and they didn't. And I think that's probably quite good because once you start getting into the territory of Eve Klein's big blue paintings and other people who've done single colour monochrome. So instead they just concentrated on, on greys and there's a bit of sepia mixed in there as well and a couple of bit of brown, but they just concentrated on, on the greys. And I think that's why it works because they went, let's just, let's just stick to black and white and, and the, and the many shades in between. What were the particular highlights for you? I loved the Ingres, uh, uh, Grand Odalisque, uh, done in, in grey. I thought that was beautiful because I think I love the original Odalisque. Uh, but this, there's something about reducing, um, the reclining nude to a sort of a flat plane of white amongst these folds of, of dark black that really makes her stand out. And I think that that happens quite a lot in the show where you see grisaille used to separate, uh, make things pop out of make the colors pop around the gray and i really like that so i thought that was beautiful i love the carrier woman holding her child because that's such an incredible proto gerhard richter it's this big blurred foggy nightmarish vision and that's a hundred years before richter it's so cool did you feel they slightly missed a trick by not putting a richter next to it or would that have just been too obvious i think maybe it would have been obvious but i would have been like, go for the obvious make it easy for me i would i'd have much rather had that uh, i loved those i thought the uh, Malevich, Frank Stella and Bridget Riley, they really work in, as part of that conversation. And I also really love the uh, Olafra Elias and I, it, it, it's so cool what it does to your eyes. It makes you feel so queasy. It makes you look sort of not alive. And then as you come stumbling out back into the real world and all the colours come rushing back in, it's a lovely feeling. And the I think the show pulls a really neat trick, which is that the it doesn't prioritise the art. The art actually makes you thankful for all the colour in the world, which is such a nice feeling because you go and you look at these beautiful paintings and you come out going, oh, I'm really glad everything's not in black and white. And that's a great trick to pull because it makes you happy for the world, happy to be alive. That's a Thanks, art, you know, <laughs> for once. <laughs> what a great night to end on, Eddie. Thanks very much. Thanks very much.
Cezanne Portraits is at the National Portrait Gallery in London until the 11th of February and then travels to the National Gallery of Art in Washington opening on 25th of March. Soutine's Portraits is at the Courtauld Gallery until 21st of January and Monochrome is at the National Gallery in London from next Monday, 30th of October until the 18th of February. It then opens at the Museum Kunstpalast in Dusseldorf on the 22nd of March. And that's all for this episode. You can read Vanson Noss's report not about forgeries but about the troubles at UNESCO in the coming print edition of the art newspaper, which is out on the 1st of November. And do listen to last week's podcast on that subject if you haven't already. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please do post a rating or review if you have a spare moment. You can also let us know what you think on Twitter or Facebook at the art newspaper. Until next week.